0: welcome to the moyo nutrition podcast where each week we bring you our thoughts and more in-depth discussion on the latest research reviewed in our weekly newsletter you're joined today by nutrition professors rachel brown hi rachel hi there and myself, Lisa Houghton, who are passionate about keeping you up to date with the latest health research and debunking the bad science amongst the over 20,000 nutrition-related research publications a year. This is episode 10, and last week we talked about the number 10 being considered the perfect number.
1: Oh, that does put a bit of pressure on us this week, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> oh no, my my motto is, done is better than Perfect. Only because I'm kind of a recovering perfectionist, so you know that one helps. However, last week we did open with a recent egg and vitamin D study, but quickly got sidetracked on the egg's very long-standing cholesterol story. So we never actually got that one done. Yeah,
1: well, I'm glad we actually had that opportunity, I guess, to look at the whole egg and cholesterol story and and set a few things straight there.
0: Yeah, me too. And you even got that opportunity to mention your academic crush there, Rachel Ansel Keys, pulling him out from under the bus. Yes, poor audience or
1: keys and I think we, we should really put aside a future episode to discuss this
0: whole saga yeah I think that would be super interesting but for this week we decided yep yeah, let's go back and um, discuss that vitamin d and egg story
1: Yeah, and I think it's really good timing, I think, as we head into those darker days of autumn and then winter here, at least in the southern hemisphere.
0: Yeah, and this study did catch my eye um, because we do indeed take that hit to our vitamin D status over the winter. Um, New Zealand sits at a latitude between 34 to about 47 degrees, South, and, and that's very similar to a large portion of the US and Europe if we flipped ourselves onto the Northern Hemisphere. So, given that our endogenous production of vitamin D, so it's the vitamin D produced in our skin, does require UVB exposure from the sun the decline of those uvb rays in the winter and the shorter days and the cold weather mm-hmm. leads to less sun exposure on the skin and that definitely affects her opportunity to make her own vitamin d
1: Yeah, true. And I think that's about the time of year now that I have to retire my bikini or or at least my swimsuit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you and the rest of the New Zealand population. Mm. So from a population standpoint, we start to see declines in vitamin D status from those summer highs. And then the decline starts to begin in autumn and and hits a, a real low in late winter and spring.
1: And what about the different regions?
0: What kind of differences in vitamin D status do we see there? Well, yes, my North Island girls, if you could escape Dunedin here in the South Island for your North Island paradise, you would have higher vitamin D status throughout the winter months.
1: Um, All adding to the list of reasons why I should be there all year round, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And there's several other factors that, of course, come into play with vitamin D status, including skin color. So the darker your skin tends to be, then the lower your vitamin D status, as you would require more sun exposure time to produce that same amount of vitamin D as a lighter skin individual.
1: Okay, so is that because of the higher concentration of melanin pigment in the skin with those with the darker
0: skin color? Yeah, exactly. And that melanin actually acts as a sunscreen, so it filters those UVB rays. Okay, so how low do we go in wintertime? Well, as a population, our mean vitamin D levels, which we, you know, when we say the biomarker for vitamin D and measuring, it's serum 25-hydroxy-D. And that biomarker does drop by about 25 to 30 nanomoles in the wintertime, so at its low. So to put that in perspective, most of us have adequate vitamin D status in the summer if we apply the cutoff of 50 nanomoles per liter. And during the summer, The the mean serum 25 hydroxy D levels sit at a high of about 60 to 70 nanomoles, so above that cutoff. And that's despite sun protection measures. We just seem to be getting enough sun exposure to reach sufficient status. And we actually only need approximately 20% of our skin exposed in the summer to achieve that status.
1: Oh, interesting. So, what does that twenty percent look like?
0: Well, <laughs> we <go> naked. <laughs> well, it means just like wearing shorts and a t-shirt. That in itself equates to approximately thirty-three percent of body exposure. So, more than you need. So, you don't even need to rock that bikini, RB. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for that. <laughs> but by the spring, the the mean population level, so they've been falling all winter. By springtime, they hit their low at about thirty-six to forty. 32 nanomoles per litre.
1: Right. And, and so, is the seasonal decline what you also see in
0: countries with a similar latitude but in the northern hemisphere? Yeah, definitely. They're going to experience similar declines, but not to the same extent, especially in countries like Canada and the U.S., where they have vitamin D fortified foods. So that's more widespread than in New Zealand. And in the case of Canada, vitamin D fortification of milk and margarine is mandatory. So their winter dip in vitamin D is much less severe than ours here in New Zealand, where we have very little food that's fortified. Fortified with vitamin D and we do not have a mandatory approach. Nonetheless, if we look to the latest Canadian national survey data, it does show that about 40% of Canadians were below that 15 animal per liter cutoff in winter compared to only about a quarter of the population in the summer.
1: Oh. So, I suppose, I guess, if you are consuming these higher intake of uh, vitamin D through the milk, it will help you to attenuate that decline in winter. But what is happening with dairy milk consumption in Canada? I know the Canadians have changed their, their guidelines in recent years. And suppose, I guess, what I'm asking is uh, is it declining? And if so, will it affect? The population's vitamin D status?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because we do know that milk has gradually declined over the years. So in consumption across the life cycle, with some of the most recent data in Canada showing consumption of milk now has hit an all-time low, and that's data from 2019. And there's no question that this will affect the, you know, the nutritional profile of the diet. Right now, we know that dairy milk consumption contributes almost 40% of the kind of recommended intake of vitamin D in the diets of Canadians.
1: Mm. Okay, so that probably brings in the question about vitamin D in, in plant-based milks.
0: Yeah, and this is your wheelhouse, RB. Do you know what's happening here?
1: well, I did some digging around really more in the New Zealand context, looking at some of the plant-based milks. And definitely some of them were fortified and levels ranging from around about 0.5 to 2 micrograms per 100 grams, that is, uh, which is pretty close to milk. But I think it's also important to identify that there are some that had no fortification in some of these plant-based milks. And I think um, it it does tend to be different uh, in different countries as well
0: Yeah, well, if you are talking about those that are fortified, that range is not too bad, Mm. especially if we compare it to the recommended dietary vitamin D intakes, which in most countries range from about 5 micrograms to 15 micrograms per day. So, on the higher end of intake, if you're having a cup or two of plant based milk fortified at what you said, 1 to 2 micrograms Mm. per 100 grams or 100 mils, you're likely achieving your recommended. Recommended intake level of vitamin D. All oh, right.
1: Yeah, all this talk really does highlight one of my favorite nutrition topics, and that's really food based strategies. Uh, but I guess before we kick off the discussion about correcting our, our wintertime def- deficits of vitamin D through foods, I guess what are the consequences of these seasonal highs and then the lows of, of vitamin D?
0: Yeah, well, that's an excellent question. We we do know that as, as a result of our vitamin D levels falling in the winter, we kind of see this kind of concomitant rise in parathyroid hormone. And parathyroid hormone and vitamin D form a tightly controlled feedback cycle with PTH being a major stimulator of vitamin D synthesis in the kidney. So, you know, it does help with that metabolism of vitamin D, but at the same time, um, high levels of vitamin D, um, be it status, will uh, exert a negative feedback on parathyroid hormone secretion. So that wonderful kind of mother nature system Mm. kicking in. And the major function of parathyroid hormone is that as a kind of physiological regulator of circulating ionized calcium. So that's our blood calcium. So essentially, PTH does a bunch of things. It has effects on the kidney with vitamin D um, metabolism, and then some. It has effect on the gut with calcium absorption. And then it also targets the bone, and mainly in regard to bone resorption. And this is where bone is broken down and minerals like calcium are released. And all of this is done with the aim of maintaining your serum calcium level within that very tight range which is really important for things like muscle contraction and nerve impulses. So to answer your question, in the winter with those lower vitamin D levels and the rise in parathyroid hormone, we're starting to see more bone resorption. So that means that the bone is being demineralized and calcium is being released from it.
1: And so do we see higher risk of osteoporosis?
0: Well, you will with chronically low levels of vitamin D status. Um, That can increase the risk of osteoporosis and fractures. But whether this is true for these kind of seasonal um, cyclic um, events that we see with vitamin D where they go from high and low is not so clear. There's lots of things that come into play with osteoporosis and the risk factors. There's things like calcium intake, age, and and maybe even more so genetic factors. So in regard to vitamin D's kind of seasonal high and low patterns, it's much more complex. and, And the pathways themselves... With vitamin D are somewhat indirect, which kind of contributes to this whole complexity of trying to figure it out. But what I can say is that bone has a spectacular ability to remodel. So that means bone formation and bone resorption are a very coordinated process, such that you will see bone building happening right after bone resorption, and especially during those kind of summer vitamin D highs. Yes, very
1: complex. But surely maintaining an adequate vitamin D status would be optimal?
0: Yeah, like no harm in that from what we can see. Plus, there's lots of work on vitamin D and its role um, you know, beyond bone health. There's research suggesting that adequate vitamin D may have benefits – with things like lowering the risk of breast and colorectal cancer, you know, cardiovascular disease in men, and even um, you know having a role in autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis. However, the research, you know, looking at the benefits of the vitamin D, it, mostly those randomized control trials in these areas that I've just mentioned is still quite inconclusive. But yeah, the goal should be to maintain adequate levels throughout the year.
1: Okay, so that's good. So now
0: going to food, where can we get the vitamin D from? Well, this is the dilemma of vitamin D because diet is actually a very minor source of vitamin D compared to sunlight. Um, But with our sun safe kind of protection measures in place. And those are big, strong public health messages here in New Zealand, where we have a high rate of melanoma. Our dietary recommended recommended intakes for vitamin D, they basically assume that we're getting very minimal sun exposure. So without sun exposure. Here in New Zealand, we have uh, an adequate intake level that's recommended at five micrograms of vitamin D. And I have to say this is quite an outdated recommendation because the Institute of Medicine that sets it for US and Canada, um, they've reviewed it more recently than New Zealand, and they came up with much higher recommended intake levels, setting an estimated average requirement at 10 micrograms and a recommended Dietary allowance at 15 micrograms. So that is much higher than um, New Zealand, that still sits at five.
1: Oh, interesting. So, with recommended intake levels in mind, what foods are naturally high
0: in vitamin D? Yeah, so only a few, mostly being oily fish like salmon. So a 30-gram serving of salmon will provide about 4 to 5 micrograms of vitamin D, so a good hit of vitamin D. Other fish like mackerel is quite high in vitamin D, and then down to something like tuna. And, you know, if you're into eel, and I always have one Mm -hmm. or two guys in the class raise their hands when asked if they regularly consume eel – It's also really rich in vitamin D, about 50 micrograms of vitamin D per per serve. But really, after the the oily fish, excluding the eel, eggs are your next best natural source of vitamin D.
1: Yes, and in our newsletter, we do have a link to the NIH ODS Health Professional Fact Sheet, which was pretty extensive in the tables listing the vitamin D content of the um, different foods. Okay, so give us the lowdown on eggs and vitamin D. Yeah,
0: because I guess at this rate, we won't actually get to that study. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Again.
0: <laughs> okay, so a study last month was published in the journal Nutrition from a research group at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. So for those that don't know where Melbourne is, it does sit at about 37 degrees south which is a very similar latitude to Auckland here in New Zealand. And then if we flip it to the Northern Hemisphere, we're looking at a a similar latitude. So something like Santa Cruz, California, which sits on the 37th parallel.
1: Okay, that's really handy, especially for our Northern
0: Hemisphere listeners. Yep, we love our Northern Hemisphere listeners, those more North Americans, especially our Canadians. Mm. Hi, Connie. Hi, Connie, if you're out there listening. (laughs) So the researchers of this study did ask the question about whether consuming eggs regularly in the winter months would prevent that decline that we see in vitamin D status.
1: Okay, so I guess that really does make me wonder uh, how much vitamin D
0: is in an egg, and then so how many do you have to eat? Okay, so as I mentioned before, eggs are one of the few natural sources rich in vitamin D, and they contain two forms of vitamin D. They contain vitamin D3 and 25-hydroxyvitamin D. And that latter one, 25-hydroxy-D, is, you know, potentially up to five times um, the relative biological activity of vitamin D3.
1: Okay, so I think it is important to acknowledge there are different forms of vitamin
0: D in food. Yeah, definitely. And and vitamin D3 is the form that humans make endogenously in their skin, I do have to remind everyone that's not the biologically active form. That form does have to kind of head off to the liver for hydroxylation, where it's converted to 25-hydroxy-D3. That's that biomarker we use to measure vitamin D status. And then that metabolite is shipped off to the kidney to undergo a second hydroxylation to 125 dihydroxy vitamin D3 which is now the biological active form of vitamin D. So like all animal foods will contain natural sources of vitamin D and that's in that form of D3. So similar to humans they're making vitamin D3. Plant-based foods, Rachel, because you like your plant-based foods, they contain some contain vitamin D like mushrooms, but that's in a different form. It's in the form of vitamin D2. So these are just slight slight differences in their side chain. Both of these forms, D2 or D3, are readily absorbed by the human gut and they both undergo hydroxylation. However, there are other forms in animal foods like 25-hydroxy-D and these are present in very, very small quantities, but given that they're deemed more potent they are quite good at increasing your own levels of 25 hydroxy d and there is of course debate on the level of potency some say you know ranging from about you know one to two to up to five times but whatever you use you are getting a much banger <laughs> much banger for your buck. <laughs> <laughs> do you mean big a bang <laughs> Yes, you're getting a much bigger bang for your buck, Rachel, with 25-hydroxy-D. We'll just leave that. (laughs) Okay,
1: so eggs contain if I'm um, hearing you right, both vitamin D and 25-hydroxy-D. And like humans, I guess it gets me thinking... Does the eggs latitude affect this?
0: It does. The vitamin D content of eggs will vary based on the geographical location. But of course, this will also depend upon animal production practices like caged versus free range eggs. But the really interesting thing is that the vitamin D content of eggs can also be manipulated by way of how much vitamin D is added to the hen's feed. So feed that is fortified with either vitamin D3 and, and often and, and it cases with 25-hydroxy-D as the fortificants, that has uh, shown to significantly increase the level of vitamin D in eggs. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, so on average, the vitamin D3 content per egg, weighing in at about 60 grams, say an, an average medium egg, the D3 content ranges from about 0.4 to 0.8 micrograms. So that doesn't look fantastic. I mean, it's, it's a little, but not mm-hmm. a lot. But the level of 25-hydroxy uh, D3 ranges in about the similar kind of content of 0.4 to 0.6 But given that high potency, we can apply a correction factor of, say, up to five times because it's five times more potent. And that egg ends up resulting in a total vitamin D activity per egg of about 2.5 to 3.4 micrograms per egg. Oh, that's interesting.
1: So what is reported when we look at the food composition tables? Do they report the total vitamin D activity?
0: No, they actually most, uh, I mean, I can't speak for all tables, but most tables just report vitamin D3 or D2. I do know here in New Zealand, the Australian New Zealand Food Standards Code um, doesn't recognize um, 25-hydroxy D3 as um, a form of vitamin D that might be present in foods that would contribute to increasing your vitamin D status. So, even though we know there's lots of studies now demonstrating the ability to put it in feed, increase, you know, the the uh, things like eggs, the contents in eggs, but it's not currently recognized as um, a metabolite that would help with your vitamin D status.
1: Oh, okay. But say at a a research level, they have considered the effect of this metabolite on vitamin D status.
0: Yeah, I think it's the right thing to do. If we have all this evidence, it's increasing it. And if you look at an egg that now is containing between 3.5... That, you know, micrograms per um, egg of vitamin D and your recommended intake here in New Zealand is five micrograms. Well, we can see that eating an egg a day will nearly meet your recommended needs. So hence a study. Yeah, and a really nice study. So the study was a randomized control study. They did evaluate the dose response effect of consuming two eggs, seven eggs, or 12 eggs per week on serum 25 hydroxy vitamin D concentrations. And this was done over 12 weeks during the autumn and winter months.
1: Yeah, and I note that they not only measured that 25-hydroxyvitamin D status, which was the primary outcome, but they also uh, investigated some of the changes in serum lipids, and along with kind of the feasibility and, I guess, acceptability of consuming this many eggs over that period of time.
0: Yeah, and why not, eh? Like, you've done a lot of acceptability work in your NUT studies,
1: yeah, and it's a really good approach to look at the acceptability when you're making kind of a daily intake recommendation like we do with nuts or in this case with eggs, um, you know, to see if people can really do it. So whether or not they get absolutely sick of eating their assigned food every day, and in that case, the, the recommendation is really not uh, suitable for, for um, long-term health
0: Yeah, so I will let you go ahead and inform the listening audience on the types of questions they asked.
1: Okay, so I was really quite interested in this one. So I can see from the paper that the egg acceptability uh, measurements included whether they liked eating the eggs, uh, whether they liked the taste of eggs, also how satisfied they felt after eating the eggs, Uh, how easy or difficult it was for them to prepare the eggs to eat, The level of effort required to eat the eggs, and whether eating out, because of course there's lots of eating out in usual times, uh, does influence regular egg consumption. And also the ease at which they could then continue to eat the same amount of eggs as they were prescribed to after the study finished.
0: Yeah, and I guess even just study compliance is always an insightful indicator of acceptability.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And in the study, compliance was really fairly good at 84% compliance and adherence didn't actually differ between the treatments, meaning that the adherence to eating 12 eggs per week was just as good as eating two eggs per week.
0: Yeah, and as for all good study designs in the area of vitamin D, they measured sun exposure and protection practices, mainly looking at the usual time spent outdoors between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. To again ensure there were no differences, differences here among those groups.
1: And as you've mentioned previously, testing the vitamin e,
0: D levels
1: of eggs.
0: Yeah, they did. They did take a you know a randomized sample of eggs. They tested those eggs um, that were consumed in the study, and they did find a total vitamin D activity level of about 5.2 micrograms per egg. So that's a bit higher than what we just discussed before. And, of course, that's higher because most food composition tables wouldn't count that 25-hydroxy-D level. Mm. So what did they find? Well, they found that eating seven or 12 eggs per week worked. So specifically, participants that consumed only two eggs per week, and they called those the kind of control group, they experienced that decline in serum 25-hydroxy-D um, over that 12-week period. And it, it was on average a reduction of 29 nanomoles per liter. So that's
1: similar to what we see here in New Zealand over there
0: the winter months. Yeah spot on Uh, you know it's actually a a tiny bit higher and there was some discussion that the authors um, highlighted the um, COVID-19 having an effect on the study so people were probably a little bit more housebound Mm. than they would have been in usual times but yeah it's very similar and then if we look to the participants that were eating the seven and the 12 eggs per week well they also experienced a slight decline but it was non-significant their decline and their reduction was about seven to eight nanomoles per liter so you know that's that's fairly little big difference from the control group and there were no difference between those two groups so the seven and twelve eggs absolutely no difference in their decline
1: So it was really eggs in
0: for the win there. Yeah, yeah. So collectively, you know, the authors kind of conclude that this indicates that consumption of seven commercially available eggs per week because they were, you know, off the shelf eggs really is the way to go. And this is in line with most dietary guidelines. So you can say it represents a safe and effective dietary approach to prevent that winter decline in your circulating 25-hydroxy-D concentrations. And it, again, this is in healthy adults residing in southern Australia. But I think we can say, you know, if for similar latitudes, this type of result could apply. But Mm. they also took a look at those cholesterol and acceptability findings. So I'll let you take it from here.
1: Okay. So it's probably important to firstly point out that the study wasn't powered to detect differences in blood cholesterol concentrations. But interestingly enough, there were actually no statistically significant differences Uh, in cholesterol concentrations, and that's the different types of cholesterol um, between the different egg groups. Uh, The researchers did note a within-group increase in total and LDL cholesterol in the 12 eggs a week group so total cholesterol increased by about 0.47 millimoles per liter and ldl it was about 0.41 so we need to acknowledge that there was some increase here too but but there was also some increase in the control group they actually increased 0.22 millimoles per liter so it's you know for these uh, randomized studies we do have to look at that being the the most important outcome the, between different groups Right group difference, yeah.
0: Okay, so to give it some context too, how much cholesterol per day were the twelve eggs per week group consuming?
1: So this group was provided probably with an extra around about four hundred milligrams of cholesterol, and the observed cholesterol increase was really in line with uh, the dietary blood cholesterol and or dietary cholesterol and blood cholesterol modelling that we looked at last week.
0: Yeah and of course as discussed last week what was the saturated fat intakes of the participants?
1: Yeah and this is important because we know that the saturated fat really does have the bigger increase on our blood cholesterol levels than does dietary cholesterol and just trying to look at some of their dietary data, it did look like the average saturated fat intake in their background diet was really around about 13% of total energy. So that is a little bit higher than what's recommended. So we do recommend less than 10% of total energy should be from saturated fat. And so it's probably likely in this group that a reduction in saturated fat to the recommended levels is probably likely to have a a cholesterol-lowering effect, which would outweigh any of the hypercholesterolemic effects that we do see with eating the eggs.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I'd encourage anyone to go back to that um, podcast from last week uh, and listen to some of the evidence over the years that have accumulated in this area. So what about the acceptability results?
1: Yeah, well, overall, participants really rated highly that they they liked the eggs uh, in terms of their, their taste and also that it wasn't too difficult or too much effort to actually consume their prescribed dose of eggs.
0: Yeah, and they could cook them any way I noted. It could be fried. It can be scrambled. Yeah, so that makes it handy as well. Yeah. Yeah, and it all great news to me because I am a vegetarian who does consume eggs. And in fact, I'm in the 12 eggs per week group at least. So I'm feeling pretty good about my vitamin D status. Yes, it should be
1: right up there. And and yeah, we don't ever uh, like to uh, designate a food as a superfood, but I think eggs are one of those foods that comes pretty darn close. Um, And as we mentioned last week, they're also a great source of protein. They have that high Satiety index, so make make you feel fuller. They contain uh, the fat soluble vitamins, like we've just discussed, vitamin D, but also vitamin E, and of course uh, some of those essential fatty acids. So this whole area of fortified foods, uh, you know, has led to increases in other vitamins and minerals like folate and selenium, as well as omega three fatty acids.
0: Yeah, a lot of work going on in, you know, kind of the poultry area, looking at increasing these levels in eggs with other vitamins and minerals. And, and I think you have to mention, too, that eggs are among the animal foods which have the lowest carbon emission due to the feed conversion rate, making them a more environmentally friendly food choice when it comes to food from animals.
1: Yeah, so I need a perfect food to profile in the perfect episode 10. Lisa, you must be
0: thrilled. (laughs) Okay, well, what a perfect note to end the show. (laughs) Well, that's it for our episode for today. Thank you to everyone for listening in. All of our discussion and study links can be found in our weekly newsletter, which is free to anyone who wants to subscribe. And you can go to Moyo Nutrition at our Instagram or Twitter account and receive our newsletter using the link. And to keep up to date, make sure you follow us here. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing us around. We'll be back next week with episode 11, where we'll be talking about what, Arby? Well, uh, a few weeks ago, there
1: was the emergence of, or the the hype around the emergence of potato milk. So I thought that it would be a good opportunity to maybe take a a deeper dive into
0: different plant-based milks. Excellent. Well, until then, have a great week, everyone, and stay evidence-based.